John the Baptist appears in all four of the Gospels. Why do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all begin their Gospels with the preaching of John the Baptist? John the Baptist, the last and perhaps the greatest of the Old Testament prophets today, calls upon the people of Israel to repent. This week in Oro Valley Catholic, we're gonna talk about John the Baptist as a prophet, his role in history, the Messianic age, and how the Gospel of Matthew expresses the mystery to the modern church. Last week in the first Sunday of Advent, the Gospel reminded us of Jesus' preaching about the end of the world. In the second Sunday of Advent, the church points us in another direction. It points us to the beginning of Jesus's coming into the world. As we consider the story of John the Baptist, we will uh, also uh, remember that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. Before we discuss John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew, I would like to point out that he makes another appearance in a very different ancient writing. And it's in a writing called Jewish Antiquities. In the first century, there was a Jewish historian named Josephus. He lived from about 37 AD to 100 AD. So he lived after the time, by about four years, of Jesus and a little bit more for after the beheading of John the Baptist. But he sees the John the Baptist's uh, murder by Herod as playing a role in some of the Jewish struggles that occurred thereafter. Josephus wrote a series of books. One was The Jewish War, which was a history of the Jewish rebellion against Rome that was crushed by Vespasian and Titus. Remember, that is the uh, Arch of Vespasian uh, that commemorates the Roman uh, victory, which is just outside of the front gate of the Colosseum. He also wrote an autobiography. That's how we know something about him. He also wrote an argument against the Greeks, uh, defending uh, Judaism against the Greeks. But the doc the document, the, the book that we're going to talk about today is Jewish Antiquities. And it's a contemporary history of Jewish affairs in Josephus's time. Uh, what Josephus wrote about John the Baptist had to do with uh, Herod's destruction, the destruction of his army by another Tetrarch named uh, Aretas, and uh, the role that that played in setting up uh, some of the problems of Israel and its interaction with Rome. And so this is a long story short. Herod and Aretas are fighting over some territory in uh, Galilee. Herod's army is destroyed by Aretas. Herod writes the Roman emperor and complains and uh, is looking for some help, and he's going to get it against Aretas. But what Josephus points out is that the Jews thought that the reason he lost had to do with his murder of John the Baptist. And so this is from chapter 18 of Josephus's Antiquities. 
Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God as a just punishment of what Herod had done against John, who was called the Baptist. For Herod had killed this good man, who had commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God. For only thus, in John's opinion, would the baptism he administered be acceptable to God. Namely, if they used it to obtain not pardon for some sins, but rather the cleansing of their bodies, inasmuch as it was taken for granted that their souls had already been purified by justice. Now many people came in crowds to him, for they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who feared that the great influence John had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best to put him to death. In this way, he might prevent any mischief John might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. Accordingly, John was sent as a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, uh, the castle I already mentioned, and was put to death. Now the Jews thought that the destruction of his army was sent as a punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure with him. So what do we know about John the Baptist from the testimony of the gospel? Well, in Matthew, we know that he chose to dress and live like the ancient prophet Elijah. Elijah is one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament, and he lived about 800 years before the time of John the Baptist. So when John the Baptist uh, dresses, as it says in the gospel today, in animal skins with a belt of uh, leather, he is imitating the prophet Elijah, who in the book 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 says, that the prophet wore a garment of hair cloth with a belt of leather. So people know that this prophetic figure existed, the Jewish people of the time. And so when John uh, takes that as his costume, probably very intentionally, he's sending a message that he is the fulfillment of the prophet Malachi, who said that before the Messianic age happened, that God would send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah, that Elijah would return. Because remember, a prophet, a nabi, is someone who speaks for God. So whether the body is Elijah or John, the voice is God's voice. And here's the second thing about John as his prophetic figure. He lives in the desert and is provided for solely by God. It says he lives of honey and locust, both things that can be harvested naturally. So he is disconnected uh, from the Jewish system from towns and farms. You know, John was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah, if you remember, was a temple priest. One of the most interesting things about John is he's kind of a rebellious young man who could have had apparently a successful career as a temple priest, but instead goes out beyond the margins of Israel. So the first thing to remember about John 
is that by his dress and how he lives, he is making a prophetic statement. Here's the second thing to remember about John, is that John is baptizing at the Jordan River, uh, at the place where the people crossed over uh, from uh, Egypt to Israel. If you remember the story, the people wandered for 40 years in the desert in the old Exodus, which is recounted in the first five books of the Bible. And then Moses dies, and the people are led by the priests and the Ark of the Covenant across the River of Jordan into Canaan land. Consider how Matthew has organized this story. He's got the place, the Jordan River, where the people crossed over. He's got a priest, John the Baptist. And pretty soon, what's going to show up? The New Covenant. And so he is recreating the entry of the people of God across the Jordan River into Canaan. He refers to Jesus in his preaching because he says that he is not the Messiah, but that he's preparing the way for someone whose sandal he is not fit to tie. He's not even fit to be the slave of the one that is coming. And so why are the people attracted to him? They're attracted to him because he is the forerunner of the Messianic age. What is the Messianic age? Um, you know, I think it's a, a pretty common understanding, and it's because there's truth in it, that the Jewish people in the first century expected, among other kinds of messiahs, a political leader. That's why these wars with Rome that occurred in the mid-60s, which Josephus talked about, and then the uh, last great uh, rebellion, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which occurred about 135 AD. All of these fights with the zealots uh, were part of this whole ferment about the Messianic age. But when phrases like the kingdom of heaven were used, it wasn't simply about the presence of God in Israel. It also was about an age that was to come, that was foretold by the prophets. There was an age when violence would uh, cease, evil would cease, and peace would reign uh, for God's holy people. The great prophet of that was, of course, the prophet Isaiah in the first reading. Um, our first reading, which is about the Messianic age, was written by Isaiah, who was a prophet who began around the time of the Babylonian uh, war, which was about in the 600s uh, before, about 600 years before Jesus and John the Baptist. And here's how Isaiah talked about the Messianic age. On that day, a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a bud shall blossom. Now, pretty clearly what that refers to in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, is Jesse, who is the father of King David. If you listen to that passage, clearly that passage is written after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Well, because in the destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonian king 
uh, took the last king of Israel, gathered his sons in uh, front of him, and one by one killed his sons as dad was looking on. Then the last thing that the Babylonian king did to the king of Israel was gouge his eyes out and then take him into captivity into Babylon where he died. So the king of Israel is of the line of David, like a tree that stretches out back to David and Solomon. And so when the king is blinded and taken away from Israel, his line is cut off. When his sons are killed, you now have the tree of Jesse, David's father, that's now a stump. And so what Isaiah's prophecy is, is that like when you cut down a tree in your backyard, if you don't kill it, it's possible that another shoot will come out and the tree will start again. And that's what Isaiah's messianic prophecy is. But it's more than just the Davidic kingship will come back and uh, the king will lead the armies of Israel in war against its enemies. Think about how uh, this prophecy goes on. The second part of the prophecy is that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. You remember John the Baptist said he would baptize in fire in the Holy Spirit. And that spirit would be the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel, of strength, of knowledge, and of fear of the Lord. His delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Not by appearance shall he judge, nor by hearsay shall he decide. He shall judge the poor with justice and decide a right for the lands afflicted. So he is going to see with the wisdom that exceeds even Solomon. And then when that messianic figure comes, here's what the world's going to look like. Then the wolf shall be a guest of the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion shall browse together, and a little child to guide them. The cow and the bear shall be neighbors, together their young shall rest, the lion shall eat hay like the ox, the baby shall play by the cobra's den, and the child lay his hand on the adder's lair. There shall be no harm or ruin at all on um, God's holy mountain and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. So it's not just about this age for the people of Israel. No, it includes all the nations because it says that the root of Jesse will be a single signal for all the nations. And so that when the church asks us to look at this prophecy from Isaiah alongside of the prophecy of St. John the Baptist, it is why people were so excited about the preaching of John the Baptist. He was symbolizing a new exodus. He's at the River Jordan. He's a priest or a son of a priest. The new covenant, Jesus is coming. And now this new age is set to come. And so we're gonna see how that turns out in the Gospel of Matthew. How is the new messianic age made present in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, there's more than a few um, examples of it, how Matthew writes his gospel around this prophecy from uh, Isaiah, 
which is, you recall, is about this uh, ideal messianic king, um, this future world where there is no violence on God's holy mountain, and how this messianic king uh, will take the blessings of Israel out to all the nations. And so I'd like to point you to two different passages in Matthew that build on John the Baptist's preaching and this uh, insight or this prophecy from Isaiah. The first reading that I would point you to is also from Matthew. It's in chapter 9 of Matthew, starting at verse 35, and it goes uh, pretty much through the end of that chapter, and it's called the Little Commission. Um, It's part of uh, Jesus commissioning his disciples. And so what Jesus does is he summons his 12 disciples. I'll just read it. Then he summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to cure every disease and every illness. Jesus sent out these 12 after instructing them thus, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, make this proclamation, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, drive out demons. Without cost you have received, without cost you are to give. So that would be the reading. It was actually the uh, reading for Saturday morning though of the first week of Advent. And so think of the relevant parts of that commission to these disciples. He's sending them first to the people of Israel because that is what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to reconstitute Israel. He's supposed to cleanse the temple. Um, But what he does is Jesus sends the disciples out with power. They can cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, drive out demons um, as this messianic symbol that a new age has come. Okay, so they go out, they come back. If you remember that even Satan is subject to them. And so let's call that the first part of the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy, that Jesus is giving signs that it isn't an army he's raising, but that this other world is now impinging, interposing itself on the material world of Israel. If you remember last week, which was about the end of the world, um, I talked about how the, the Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview is that there are these two worlds that exist side by side, the living and the dead. Uh, the kingdom of uh, man and the kingdom of God. Sacraments point to that, um, that there are these material things like bread and wine and water that have this deep spiritual effect. But Matthew is not done with how he shows Jesus fulfilling these messianic prophecies. And so the next passage I'd ask you to turn to is at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28. And it's when Jesus is sending the disciples out into the whole world. Let me read it to you. Think about these words from chapter 28, verses 16 to 20 of the Gospel of Matthew. The 11 disciples, remember Judas has, uh, 
has left the group. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. Then Jesus approached and said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Well, there it is, the completion of of the Messianic prophecy, beginning with John the Baptist and the one who would baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And then the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples uh, to raise the dead, to cast out demons and to cure lepers. And then at the very end, uh, the mention of the age, the Messianic age is there. And what's the Messianic age? It's the age of the church. where people, the the other nations that are not Israel, are being brought to God's holy mountain. Well, that was 2,000 years ago, and the gospel continues to be spread. Uh, Christian disciples continue to be persecuted, and baptisms happen every day around the world. And so the uh, preaching of John the Baptist, this actual historical figure, is very much about what the work of the church is doing today. You know, I don't know if you do the Christian tradition of the Jesse tree. It really begins in uh, medieval art. And the idea of the Jesse tree is uh, it's a tree with the Virgin Mary holding her child, and she's at the base of the tree. But in the branches above is the entire history of Israel that set up the Messianic age. And so uh, it's, uh, I think, really remarkable that people like Josephus were also witnesses to the preaching of John the Baptist and the expectation of the people. Because in Josephus's histories, we see how uh, the Messianic age was not going to be ushered into uh, with violence. I thought it was also interesting in Josephus that John the Baptist actually has a pretty significant role in his antiquities. But Jesus is just barely mentioned. Why? Because the people at the time believed in the military solution. They thought they could win. Meanwhile, the church was baptizing this almost underground movement that was spreading throughout the Roman Empire and would actually be the very entity uh, that brought uh, pagan Rome down. There is a lot here to think about as we consider our own times that we believe that we see the world as it is as we look at all of this violence or uh, this global economic positioning. But there is something that's quiet that's happening out there too. And it is the Messianic age. And the preaching of John the Baptist still sounds loudly in our own time. This has been a production of Oral Valley Catholic for the second Sunday of Advent. As always, you can subscribe to Oral Valley Catholic by visiting our St. Mark webpage or just looking up Oral Valley Catholic on Apple uh, Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And so until next week, may God bless you and uh, may your uh, efforts with Lexio Divina Uh, and prayer with scripture bring you closer to the Lord.